Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. My name is Alisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician and I'm also chair of the JOMA Preventative Health Committee. And I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Miriam Segura Harrison. Hi. Hi. Dr. Segura Harrison is a board certified family physician who's currently working at Cambridge Health Alliance at Union Square Family Health Center. Did I get all that right? Correct. Okay, yeah. Perfect. Great place. Having completed her family medicine residency at Brown University, she received her medical degrees from Boston University. She's also a certified lactation counselor. Actually, you got your ICBC, I can't remember. IBCLC, yeah, internationally board certified lactation consultants. Right, so you're actually up to board certified lactation yeah, consultant. Yeah. Mazel tov for that. We're very excited Thank you. for you. Thank you. She's also done curriculum development work in teaching medical students how to support nursing moms and in teaching public health and medical students about the intersection between religion, public health, and medicine. And so I'm really excited to be here with you today. We did another talk before, I think it was on perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Mood and anxiety yeah. disorders. Yeah. And that was that was excellent. And we've been meaning to have this talk for how many months now? Several, several. Yes. <laughs> so what we're talking about today is the so-called functional disorders. And yes. we're going to have to first explain what they are. I'm just going to start just to give a little introduction because I have it all written down <laughs> just to make it easy. Um, we tend to think of medical problems as either medical or psychological, but that's overly limiting and leads to poor medical care often. I mean, I see it all the time as a pediatrician. People get stuck. They really do get stuck. The brain and body are not only connected, but deeply intertwined. There's a category of disorders called functional. And that, I think that title alone is poorly understood. I think a lot of people hear functional and think, aha, that means it's all in your head. And right, but I think it's really more about that there's something that's gone wrong with the way your body functions, mm -hmm. um, which is so important to understand because all of our experience with how our body interacts with the world, it's through its functioning mm -hmm. or a, a good chunk of it is. Absolutely true. So how could we explain what functional means? Because I think we haven't done that yet. We say functioning, but what makes something a functional disorder? So um, I think we have a couple of, of good models to go through. They can help us break this down. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I like that um, that idea of that uh, the, the analogy with the smartphone, mm -hmm. you can have the hardware, which is the structure, like the actual like physical glass of the phone mm -hmm. can be cracked and prevent it from working well. Or you can have the software, like the operating system. Um, and then there can be different things like the app can be frozen. And all those things not working well can impair your functional experience of using the phone. Right. I think in this analogy, the app was the function. The function. Of yeah. The phone, and that the actual physical phone is the structural disorders. Yeah. So and psychiatric um, disorders would be the operating system. The operating system. So, yeah. and I think that all these things are sort of, it's, it's not even distinct categories like this because there's a lot of overlap. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's the other analogy that we had put together of the Venn diagram 
Mm -hmm. right? That a sore throat would be a very clear structural problem. Mm -hmm. You look in the throat, it looks red. There's white patches on it. You make a diagnosis, you swab, you get an answer. It's it's strep throat causing that sore throat. It's a very clear structural problem, right? Then we have um, abnormal thought processes or behavior um, like psychosis or major depression, Mm -hmm. right? That are clearly based in the brain, uh, or the, in the psyche, the psychiatric locus, although they're also biologic in a, in, a, in a way that's sort of complicated and difficult to untangle as well. Um, and then function, which is sort of how things in the body interact with each other, right? So someone who has chronic severe nausea that's not explained by any tests might have a disorder in the way that the brain processes, sim- processes information from the gut or might have a disorder in signaling um, chemicals from the gut to the brain, um, and all those things might be. Diff- it might be a structural disorder. It might be a. Fun- it might be a psychiatric problem, um, but we can't untangle it. You know, we don't know which of those things it is, and right. so we we call it a functional disorder. Right, and it all interacts. I mean, you really can't disentangle all those threads. Like I've had people say to me, I know I have a physical disorder. And yet if you're dealing with chronic health problems, it's going to affect your emotions. It has to. Yeah. And, and I think we also forth. don't acknowledge that enough mm-hmm. that, um, that chronic health problems can be, can really cause psychosocial suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that we often address that in our treatment plans when we make them with our patients. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I think that, you know, we need to really, and I do this a lot, is think about how to address like the whole person mm-hmm. when I'm making a therapeutic plan, including the suffering component. Like what, how, how are you as a person functioning through your illness? Um, which I think is more than about how, how sore is your throat right now? Right, right. I mean, a sore throat is an acute problem. You take antibiotics, right. it goes away and you're done. Or you break an ankle and you get it casted and you're done. Right. So a lot of these so-called functional disorders are chronic. Right. I mean, I love the example of fibromyalgia, which is mm-hmm. something that I see in my clinic all the time um, because it, um, it happens most often in women. Um, and I think in general, I guess as a society, we kind of undervalue women's pain and women's mm. suffering. Um, and so a lot of patients that I've talked to have really felt dismissed um, and not had not had their suffering recognized um, by doctors, by the medical establishment, and um, have really that's really gotten in the way of them getting better because their pain is not acknowledged as legitimate um, or disrupting the way that they are functioning in the world, which is I think a big, a big part of functional disorders that we didn't you know um, lay out here in our outline, but that I think this is very important to get to is that functional disorders interfere with people's global functioning in the world a lot of the time. Um, right, I mean, I presume that's why they're named that. I, I, that. It's a good point, but I thought it was more like physiologic functioning oh. and also like functioning in the world. Like those are two sort of overlapping and interrelated. Oh, I see what you're saying, how your body functions yeah. versus your day-to-day, how you yeah. cope. Like how are you coping? Right. Like are you able to like load your car with groceries, unload it, make a meal, that kind of thing, that kind of functioning as and opposed a lot of, to- right. And a lot of these disorders are invisible too. Right. So we and look at someone, they go to the doctor. Really mm-hmm. undervalue mm-hmm. And, um, and, and discount um, invisible disabilities. Mm-hmm. And we don't grant enough leeway 
for people who are struggling day to day with uh, disabilities and disorders that don't have a visible from the outside component. Right. And I also think that the medical world is set up to deal with the structural. Right. And for so sure. I think that especially today's day when the visits are often short, right? And, and yeah, pressured. 15 and minutes, 20 minutes. I'm really lucky. I, I, get a, I get nice um, unhurried visits with my patients, which is very, very nice. Which is why um, you can be amazing because time, <laughs> time is the most important thing. You know, I was reading about an herbalist and I read that she spends an hour and a half with each of her patients. Time is therapy. Time is therapeutic. Yeah. lack of time, you know, and so, but also it's also a mindset. You know, if you have the mindset that I'm just looking for something structural and the person comes in and they have abdominal pain and you do an exam and the exam is normal and you do a few labs and they're normal, the doctor may say, okay, you're okay. And they may even slap a label. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're really acknowledging that there's something going on that's impairing the way the body is functioning and the way the person is coping functioning. Yeah. And then coming up, helping them come up with a plan. Yeah. I, I mean, I think all of those things are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, there's also um, this other aspect of, um, you know, the dysfunction in functional disorders um, does have a lot to do with both um, the physical and the psychological or psychiatric interacting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of... Um, and I think that like when I, when I started reading more about fibromyalgia as being a disorder of pain processing, mm-hmm. um, that there's something that has gone wrong in the body's ability to process painful stimuli, um, that totally was a game changer for me in thinking about how to help my patients with fibromyalgia. Um, and the same thing with irritable bowel syndrome, which is another one that we think about a lot when we think about functional disorders. Can can we go back a little bit and define fibromyalgia and then IBS, so just in case people who are listening. Yeah, so the the diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia actually have changed recently. Mm -hmm. Um, They're defined by the American College of Rheumatology. Um, It used to be defined by by, um, uh, like a scoring form with a number of tender points that you would sort of press and the patient would be like very, very tender to palpation. Um, on specific places, not really places that you'd think of as being places for chronic pain, um, right around the hips, right around mm-hmm. the shoulders, inner part of the knees and elbows, um, that kind of was where people would kind of be very, very sensitive to pain. Um, now it's more of a more of a global functioning questionnaire that looks at non-restorative sleep, um, mood issues, um, chronic widespread pain. And so there's now a scoring scale for the chronic widespread pain scale. Um, and that's now how we diagnose fibromyalgia. And I think it's more inclusive and kind of gets at more people who fall in the fibromyalgia spectrum. So you're talking about a chronic pain syndrome that we can't find, you know, anything abnormal on clearly. Right. Like there's exam. nothing on a CT scan, right. nothing on an x-ray that can tell you, yes, this is fibromyalgia. It's a symptom questionnaire of how someone's doing day to day. And, and where they're holding pain in their body. Right, because what I'm getting to is how frequently are people with fibromyalgia also having anxiety and or depression? Oh, I think it's very, very commonly comorbid. Right, so the question is, it becomes a chicken in the, in the egg. Is it that really they're just taking their emotional distress and it's becoming pain or is the chronic pain leading them 
to feel anxious and depressed? Or does it really matter because we don't really know and it doesn't matter because everybody should be feeling better and functioning both emotionally and physically? I would say it's like more column B. (laughs) Like, I think like, I don't care which came first. Mm -hmm. I just want to help this person get better. Okay. Um, And I think also like, (laughs) let's not ignore Mm -hmm. like the role of trauma in all of this, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and the role of adverse childhood events, like those Mm -hmm. are the things that are real risk factors for um, bad things happening health-wise and not just like functional disorders, but like heart attacks and diabetes and like many, many things that are bad are made much more likely by childhood trauma um, as are, you know, anxiety, depression and other like mental health issues. Like, I think that we take a look at somebody and you're not just getting them at that snapshot in time. You've, you've got everything that they've gone through up until that point, until they get to your office. Right. Cause I did a talk with Barry Mitzman. Um, I just did it a few days ago. It'll be a separate podcast um, with her own experiences. And she tells a story of how she had pain in her hands and she, you know, has openly, I, she has mental health issues. She has what she calls chronic Lyme, which is a separate controversial topic, which we're not going to get in today um, in terms of what the criteria are for that, whatever. Um, but she has these things. And she said the pain in her hands, she thought was from neuropathy from her chronic Lyme. And then she realized it was her emotional problems leading to pain in her hands. And there was that was the exact cause of it. So it's unusual mm-hmm. that she was able to articulate. I find that most people who have um, chronic health problems are desperate to be acknowledged as having something real, which it is. Right, which yeah, it is. I think that like we need to get away from this dichotomy of real, mm-hmm. not real. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I think that if it's causing you that much impairment in your life, it's one hundred percent real. Right, but what I'm getting you know? at, what I'm getting at is, I think, and I just think about how the woman's uterus, the root is hyster, hystero, hysteria, right, yeah. and that like, the crazy woman, and we don't, we don't get believed, and women in general don't tend to get as good medical care as men do, right? Yeah, um, we're often you know, brushed off, our complaints are brushed off, especially if you already have mental yeah, health like issues. Take like take a Motrin, right? <laughs> so I, I think, I think that, that it's, it's a really big problem because a, a, say a woman comes in and she's been struggling with pain. And of course the pain is real. You and I a hundred percent agree. Medicine agrees. Yeah. Right. But some doctors might not be trained in that way. They may be trained in, you know, more of the Western structural Right. Or they may know that it's there, but they may feel very frustrated or very uh-huh. That's like, a separate issue. Yeah. Very That's... unhappy with having like another, another lady with fibro. Right. Like I can't, you know, like, but like, I feel like that's just the wrong way to go about it because I feel like just cause you don't have the magic bullet that's going to make this person better. Doesn't mean it's not like worthy of your time and attention as a doctor. Right. But what I'm getting at is I, I find there's often resistance to taking on that psychiatric mental health component as part of the problem. And what I deal with when I see patients that come in with, you know, functional disorders and functional disorders, by the way, are not a diagnosis of exclusion. You do not have to work them up the wazoo. You do a history, do a physical exam. There are certain, you know, reasonable amounts of blood tests, but, you know, you can get caught in the, in the workup trap. Um, and, and you shouldn't. You can make these diagnoses with the information you have in front of you once you do the right. good history, physical, and well, 
limited. I'll point out uh, that I'm like, not done yet. Most, <laughs> I'm getting to a point. One second. Yeah, getting well, uh, yeah, well, I just wanted to point out that most uh-huh. of, most functional disorders have recognized diagnostic criteria right. as well. Right. And once you're meeting those criteria and have reasonably excluded your like big bad other things that could be causing this. Right. Um, like you should be moved forward with a treatment plan. Exactly. But people often get stuck. And I think it's because they want that structural diagnosis or that accepted diagnosis as opposed to something that's more complex or mental health. And I, what I try to do from the very beginning is get mental health on board. Right. Well, I always view that as like more of a help you cope with your illness. Mm -hmm. Like this is not because I think what you have is all Mm -hmm. in your head. Mm -hmm. It's because you're suffering Mm -hmm. and you deserve support through helping you get better. Right. And sometimes there is a primary psychiatric issue or emotional issue driving this. Like Barry, when I interviewed her with her problem with her hands, happened to be a emotional issue. Mm. That was in this particular situation, the clear cut cause of her pain. But she has other issues right. that are not. Yeah. Right. And she said herself, chicken, egg, egg, chicken. At some point, who cares? You're saying right. it, I'm saying it, she's saying it. But I think it's important to not dismiss. And for physicians to hear, by the way, that they should understand that the mental health, it's not either or. It's not that you should be just working the patient up or you should be sending them off to a psychiatrist. You need to approach them from both angles, often at the same time. And I think that there's the role of therapeutic presence, Mm -hmm. right? You Mm -hmm. are working with someone, you're building trust with them. Mm -hmm. You're, and even if you don't have an answer to help them feel better right then and there, you're going to try different things. You're going to work together. Sorry, that's my toddler. Um, you know, and you're going to make. <laughs> um, so, so one thing I want to bring up, um, one thing I want to say is also that mental health issues, they're real. They're no less important than physical issues. And like I said, when someone is, you know, really wants to be taken seriously, and we should always take our patients seriously. Yeah. Suffering seriously. Um, they, they may not want to, to hear that, but I think it's really, really important to address it. And it can be the primary problem. It can be the secondary, it can be the tertiary. It doesn't matter. It's part of the picture. Absolutely. And I think that like treating someone as a whole person is mm-hmm. a big part of what I do, mm-hmm. um, as a primary care doctor it, and like, you're just like, if you try to just like split people into different little bits and say, I'm just going to only work on your blood pressure. I'm just going to only work on your blood sugar. It's not going to work because you're not getting the whole person. Um, and like, that is just what you need to do, especially for a chronic condition, any chronic condition, especially a functional disorder. You're, you're treating a whole person with their whole set of experiences. Right. And it's so important for the functional disorders because they are that interaction of brain yes. and body. And I'm going to quote this because I love this quote so much from the um, article that we worked on together for this for this talk. It's from Pediatrics and Review, yeah. December 2020. And it was called Understanding and Managing Adolescents with Conversion and Functional Disorders, just to give it credit because we used it a lot for this. Yeah. Um, when the mind and body, it was a great article, when the mind yeah. and body do not work together properly so that the body does not function correctly, you get a functional disorder. So that was that definition of functional where it's not functioning because the mind and body are not working together properly. And so you very often need to deal with, with both. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there was the point that like, 
sometimes the more you learn about a particular disease state, the more you find out that actually it was structural all along. Mm -hmm. Um, Or a structural component, right. Or a structural component. Mm -hmm. And I think like the more that we find out about more of these things, we will find that there are both structural and functional components to lots of these things. Um, And I think that that doesn't mean that the, the therapies that we recommend, which is cognitive behavior therapy, talk therapy, exercise, are the wrong therapy. They're mm-hmm. the right therapy. And those are the ways that we change the way that our bodies and brains function to help move towards better health and better functioning. You know, right. those are... Mm-hmm. Those are not going to be proven to be wrong. Right. You know? Right. Because there's still how you help. I mean, I know some people, they want to get to the bottom of things. They want to get to the root of things. And the bottom line, like you said, is functioning better. Sometimes yeah. it can be helpful to learn more. And sometimes it's just, you're still suffering and you're not getting anywhere where you're trying to get to that so-called root that, yeah. that you may never get to, you know? I mean, I think we need to have a lot of humility as doctors. And I think also as patients, you know, yeah. we may need to accept the limits yeah. of what we know. I think the limits of what we know is, a, is, is for, to bring on an especially timely thing is long COVID. Mm. Um, and I don't know if you've been seeing this. Um, I've been seeing it a little. Um, people with sort of unexplained, prolonged fatigue, sometimes tachycardia, sometimes prolonged muscle pain, long, long uh, courses of persistent shortness of breath, even after pretty mild illness. Um, and nothing that really physically explains um, some of these symptoms in, in most of the people. Um, and a lot of cognitive symptoms, brain fog, fatigue, really hard to treat and really hard to, um, to diagnose even. And it's really just your patient saying, I'm not functioning the way that I thought I was going to. And this or sounds I, just like chronic fatigue, POTS, right? all of these other things. I think that maybe they'll be accepted more now that more people are seeing it in the post-COVID patients. I'm not because well, I'm a pediatrician. I don't really see no. this. No. Yeah. I mean, I think I see this a lot more, um, a lot more mm-hmm. as, a, as a, someone who sees all ages. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I, I think many people have always recognized that there's a viral trigger to things like chronic fatigue syndrome in a lot of cases. Um, or, buddy, I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and there's a there's a um, a post viral component to a lot of mm-hmm. chronic disorders, chronic pain syndromes, chronic fatigue syndromes. Um, and if COVID has one, this may be an impetus for us to do more research into this particular pathophys of whatever's going on with this. Um, but again, we don't know what we don't know. You know? Right, right. And and I think that this also brings us to alternative the role of alternative medicine which is really a separate topic and we're, we're not going to go into it in great depth, um, but just at least, I want physicians who are listening to this and I hope that we get physicians to listen to this too, um, can understand what it's like when you're a patient and you're not necessarily given um, an, an, a clear cut answer to what you have or to what to do about it. And I'm not saying we don't have things we can do because you mentioned CBT and exercise, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times, um, like, especially with IBS, mm-hmm. antidepressants are helpful, mm-hmm. you know, maybe because they're treating underlying depression or anxiety, but maybe because they're also helping with neuromodulation in the gut, mm-hmm. you know, and, or, um, tricyclic antidepressants are very helpful for migraines or IBS or, mm-hmm. you know, 
duloxetine, very helpful for fibromyalgia. These are all medications that we know act on the central nervous system, but probably also act on the peripheral and autonomic nervous systems as well. Right. And so, and I think that's where a lot of functional disorders live is at this junction of autonomic peripheral mm -hmm. and central nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of there's nerves everywhere in the body. I think we forget that, that there's a little brain yes, in, the, in the gut and there's mm -hmm. a, like, there's like, you know, there's nerve ganglia everywhere all over the body and things like complex regional pain syndrome are very clearly an autonomic dysfunction, mm -hmm. you know, and there, there, there is, should be more of a, a focus on recovery and getting well and PT and CBT, all these things are very important. But I think that a lot of that is going to be about, or will be found to be about teaching these nerves how to rewire. Mm -hmm. I do want to go into what the standard treatments are, but I just want to spend just, just a minute alluding to why people would choose alternative treatments for these particular conditions. Yeah, let's I don't take know if you see on. it. I want to take it on just at least a little bit. I want to take it on yeah. a bigger, bigger. When we talk about alternative is by definition, alternative is non-proven therapies. So what we're telling people to do for these functional disorders is often counterintuitive. You may have someone who has chronic fatigue and we're going to say, you've got to exercise every day. Mm -hmm. We're also telling them that it's, there's no quick fix for this. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. You know, DBT is a lot of work. Exercise and physical therapy is a lot of work. Did you say DBT or CBT? DBT. Although both could probably be useful. Right. See, cognitive behavior therapy is a lot of work. Yes. Yes, it is. You know, there's like the long, slow road and the slow, long road. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think that it's very, um, it's very enticing right. to have alternative well, therapies that often also, will say, we can fix this one, two, three. Right. Well, there's also a lot of, a lot of CBT that's really effective in a short period of time. Like I find mm -hmm. it's amazing when I refer patients for CBT for insomnia, mm -hmm. for example, and they start sleeping better pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. in most cases. Um, and so some things, CBT is really effective and fast, mm -hmm. like faster than pharmacotherapy in some cases. Interesting. So like, I don't want people to be like, oh, CBT is going to take forever, like for everything. Like sometimes you start feeling, and it's meant to be short term, mm -hmm. like it's like 10 sessions or less in some cases. Um, but learning those cognitive restructuring techniques is absolutely essential to recovery and a lot of um, functional disorders. Right. But, you know, for a lot of these disorders, you have a complex interaction of, you know, often emotional issues, physical issues. It is not going to be fast. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I don't know what percentage you've heard of um, people with these kind of functional disorders getting alternative treatments, complementary and alternative, as they mm -hmm. like to call it. Yeah. I would think it's very high. Well, when I was in medical school, um, the, um, I went to Boston University and mm -hmm. the um, Family Medicine Department of Boston University has an excellent um, integrative um, therapy program integrated in their primary care, one of their primary care clinics. And um, they had groups for chronic, dis chronic, dis chronic functional disorders, IBS, migraines, fibro. Um, mm -hmm. And they, they talked a lot about, about lifestyle management. Mm -hmm. exercise, massage, aqua therapy, aromatherapy, all of these things that are really good for, um, that are really uh, acupuncture that can be very, very effective in helping people feel better. And I feel like when we talk about things that don't have well-defined, identified things that will definitely help, 
Um, I think we have to think about, well, is an alternative therapy that my patient's interested actively harmful mm -hmm. or likely to help mm -hmm. or, or likely to just be expensive and waste their resources and time um, or low input of resources, unlikely to be harmful, possibly helpful. Like, I think those are the ones that are going to be the high yield and we can help guide our patients towards. Right. And if you think about the brain-body connection, you know, one thing I read in the article that I love to see, because this was for doctors, is it said, use that placebo effect. You know, when you're studying something and you say there is no difference because they had the high, the same high rate with the placebo, like for example, studies of patients with migraines. Migraine has a very high placebo effect in trials. I think it's like 30% of people respond to the placebo. Right. Okay. But wait a second. If it's you, who cares what makes yeah. you better? You feel who better. Cares what makes you better? So we should yeah. not be taking away what they said in this article is milk that placebo for all its work worth. Yeah. Use the placebo. If somebody says, hey, yoga works for me, and yoga is something we can we can even prescribe. Right, yeah. yoga or aromatherapy or any of these kind of things that are not going to hurt and may help. We can. Well, aromatherapy is not always 100% safe. No, it has to be done safely. Well, if it's done with inhalation, it's usually very safe unless someone has a sensitivity. But mm. topical or ingested essential oils can be very dangerous. Mm. And people think, oh, it's natural, it's not going to hurt me. Um, but um, a lot of citrus oils applied topically can cause really nasty um, contact dermatitis, dermatitis, mm -hmm. um, and um, some other oils are photosensitizers. Um, so I really, when I hear someone's interested in aromatherapy, I want to make sure that they're doing it safely. And there's a lot of resources out there for safer use of aromatherapy, which is something that I try to guide my patients towards. They're very lucky to have you because I think that most, you know, many physicians do not have that training. And that that's a problem. I think if you don't know, you can't you can't guide. If you don't know, you don't, you don't know. Like, right. You, you don't know. You don't like know. I mean, yeah. You know, I mean, I want my patients to tell me everything they're doing. Uh, I'll never forget when I was um, taking my daughter had special needs to the hospital for some procedure and they were asking for her medication list. And I got to fish oil and whatever vitamin. They said, no, 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 I don't want to hear any of that. And I'm thinking fish oil prolongs the bleeding time. You do want to hear about this. Yeah. So and it, I, 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 I get it from the doctor's doctor, standpoint. You need to be asking about supplements and alternative yeah. But, it, but it's hard though, because I'm just telling you from yeah. the other side, from the 10 minute visit side, when you have an EMR that doesn't even list all these things, right? Like, no, you can't take this medication. It's not my EMR. But I don't, any doctor who's listened to this, I feel your pain. All right. I feel yeah. your pain. You don't have enough time. You, you cannot necessarily learn all about this. It, you know, may not be your specialty. It's, it's a hard situation to be in because yeah. we want our patients to come to us and say, Hey, is this safe? Like you knew all about aromatherapy. And by the way, as a pediatrician, I'm very concerned about essential oils being used in babies and young children. It can very often not yes. be safe. Just putting that in there. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'm just learning this. I'm just learning this now. It's not yeah. part of our education. It, it is. Like, it's not even our ongoing education. I love education. lavender oil. Like I love the scent of lavender. And I read some papers about it being an endocrine disruptor. Um, so yeah. prolonged exposure to lavender and tea tree oil caused breast growth um, in young boys. That was reversible when they stopped using the lavender. Um, so I think like a little bit, it's like also like nice smelling things are part of self-care as well. Um, but I think, you know, relying on it medicinally can be dangerous. Um, so I think that th there's really a moderation to be struck with that. Right. Right. But there definitely are things that we can say as physicians that are, 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 are clear cut, not going to hurt and may help. And mm -hmm. the bottom line for this to tell a patient is, you know, if you want to try something, ask me, I will try my best to look it up. Yeah. 
right? I mean, to the best of our ability. <laughs> yeah, and as physicians, like there's the Natural Medicines Database. There's a mm-hmm. lot of really good resources out there um, to help us as physicians help our patients make safe decisions about their Wait, care. Na- natural Medicine Database, is that what's yeah. the... Uh... Um, I think it's like one of the things like through PubMed, it's through like the NCAM, like the National Complementary Alternative Medicine, NCC, Natural Center for Complementary Alternative mm-hmm. Medicine, um, runs it. Um, it's evidence-based, up-to-date, often will have a monograph on whatever the um, adjunctive therapy is. And a lot of the more recent up-to-date articles include complementary alternative modalities for a lot of things. Oh, that's good. Um, up-to-date, so- most, most doctors, I think, have access to and use. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I think, uh, I always will quickly up-to-date things. And, mm-hmm. like, the most recent up-to-date on outpatient management migraine talks about complementary alternative modalities. And the one for IBS talks about modalities. Can you hear me now? That's better, thanks. <laughs> I have to, like, you're going to not see the bottom of my face a little bit. That's okay. All right. Um, so, yeah, so everything really is available. Um and actually, like at really like easy to use point of care resources for a lot of conditions. I mean, that's right. how I know. That's how, that's how I educated myself about a lot of complementary modalities for functional disorders was through up to date, actually. Right. Like I said, your, your patients are lucky, and I'm glad that you have the time. But you do have to understand for many patients who don't have someone like you, um, most people do not get that much time with their doctor, and, and many doctors do not have that amount of time. Yeah. Right. So we have to be empathic about it. I think I'm very big on you are your best advocate. You are your child's best advocate. If you're talking about your child is the patient Um, and and try to get good resources, not just from, you know, say mommy groups or, you know, groups that are selling you something. Once they're selling you something, you know, be skeptical. Yeah. Right. I mean, just a basic principle. It's just a basic principle. Um, But, but we should, we need to learn to, you know, to respect the um, complementary and alternative medicines as you know potentially very helpful things for our patients, especially if we don't have um, so much as much to offer them as in some other disorders. I'm not saying we don't have enough. I'm saying that when you talk about lifestyle changes, okay, eating a healthier diet, getting plenty of exercise, getting sleep, those are hard. <laughs> those well, are they're hard. hard, and they're also so driven by social determinants of health, mm-hmm. right? Saying like eat healthy and exercise is great when you have unlimited resources at your disposal. Right. Right. And not all of, not all of any of our patients can do that. Right. Um, And like to say like that only people who can do those things deserve to feel better. Right. Is horrible. Right. Right. You deserve to feel better even if you don't have the time, energy and resources to put into healthier living. Right. right. Or even maybe you have the money, but you don't have the emotional wherewithal because making changes in your life, real changes is hard. And yeah. it may take five steps forward and 10 steps back. And that's just the way it is. Whereas you may find something like aromatherapy that if you do it safely may make you feel better right away. Right. Right. Um, and we exactly can't say what, what's worth it. We can't right. say what's worth it. You know, I may think, well, it's not worth it for me. I'm not going to get the placebo effect. I find that I never get placebo effects because I know too much. <laughs> I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So therefore, it doesn't work. It's very Did sad. Did you see that study about the placebo effect working even if you know it's a placebo? No, but I just know it doesn't work for me. <laughs> okay. I get very Maybe little you help. Read that study. It will. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I'm very, I'm very evidence based. And if I don't see the evidence, I don't believe in it. If I don't believe it. <laughs> Well, I'm saying like maybe if you saw the article that placebos work, even if you don't believe in them, then you'll believe in it. I've tried. (laughs) 
<laughs> everybody's different. The point I'm making is everybody's different and what heals one person may not heal the other person. And we should have the respect because we're trying to be helpful and heal mm -hmm. people, not mm -hmm. judge them and not pick what we think works for us. And therefore it has to work for them. Well, and I we think also like this is just about like the journey of being with your patient mm -hmm. and meeting them where they're at. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to heal anybody by saying I have all the answers right. and if you don't follow it, it's on you. And I, I possessed all the ability to heal you and you didn't listen. Like that's not great doctoring. That's terrible doctoring. Right. It'll lead to more frustration and burnout on the yeah. part of the doctor. I mean, I love yeah. the collaborative approach. I mean, to me, the collaborative approach is amazing because it means you're working with them where they're at for what they want. Yeah. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And it's not just about, you know, what you think or what you know. Also, so. the patient's goal may not be your goal. Right. 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 And I think that's why making goals is so important in functional disorders. Like, what is my patient's goal? Is it to like go a whole week without a migraine? Is it to have the migraines be less severe so they don't interfere with life as much? Um, are they to have fewer migraines per month? Um, or maybe something totally unrelated, you know, a functional goal that has nothing to do with the migraines. Um, I think there's a, like, there's a DO phrase uh, attributed to um, ET still. Um, it's that, you know, anybody can find the illness, um, but the challenge is to find the health, mm. right? So if you're, if you're dealing with someone who's chronically ill, taking care of someone who's chronically ill, it can be really challenging to find what is still healthy and whole about that person. Um, and I feel like that's where like working from somebody's strengths is how you support their healing. Mm -hmm. No, it's really true. And back to migraines, you know, sometimes they'll say, for example, well, you shouldn't eat chocolate because chocolate is a migraine trigger. I'm just talking because I have migraines and I love chocolate and that's not ever going to happen. I, mean, I, I think chocolate. a lot of us, myself included, have migraines. <laughs> right. But I'm not giving up chocolate. So if someone sat there and gave me a list of things to eat and they were my favorite foods, I might want a different, you know, right. To, do, to look at it from a different way, even if, you know, like I, I went to my doctor and I said to her, you know, I, I think I trigger a lot of my migraines by not getting enough sleep. And she was great. And that she didn't tell me, well, so get sleep. Like she was also a physician. She got where I was coming from and she's like, right. you know, she didn't judge me. And now I'm like, choosing. How realistic is it for many physicians that we know to get more sleep? Okay. But I'm working on it yeah. <laughs> now, <laughs> now but only when I was ready, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, or you go in for, you know, all kinds of related problems. It's, it's the way we, we as physicians should be, right. Is not, not judging and listening to them and, and understanding that there's many ways, you know, like you said, to get to health. Yeah. Let's talk about some other, we've talked about migraines. We've talked um, about fibromyalgia. Um, let's talk about um, IBS a little bit. Cause I don't think we, we yes. alluded to it. I don't think we got into it at all. <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> IBS. <laughs> I see a ton um, of it. I see a ton. You know, I call it Jewish tummy syndrome. Oh. <laughs> So um, because who among us has not had the stress poops? Um, anyway, um, that's I'm being a little flip, but it really can be disabling. Yeah, you yeah. know, um, to have you know your everybody's brain and gut is connected, mm -hmm. and in fact, the studies that were initially done characterizing the brain gut connection um, were done in a horribly unethical manner. There was a they connected medical students to a like a, a, a nerve gut reader, and they told them oh, we see in this that you have a cancer. And then immediately like everyone's oh. nerves in their gut started firing 
because like and then they're like nope sorry it's fine like totally unethical wow (laughs) I never heard that so crazy I learned about it in medical school um unethical stress response is connected to the gut mm-hmm. um and um like everybody's gut is connected to the brain and adrenals in that way and like stress does impact the gut um and sometimes it goes wrong like you know people who have it's a syndrome um and it's um it's just better yeah it's better um and uh, we're doing this with video and it's like not exactly not exactly easy. Um, you know, the um, constellation of symptoms, there's constipation predominant, diarrhea predominant and mixed, mm-hmm. um, and there's pain predominant. So in diarrhea predominant, people have sort of sudden onset changes in their stool consistency to diarrhea or to constipation, pain that's relieved by defecation, um, and it can be really disabling. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's usually, it is, you do have to do a little bit of a workup to exclude things like celiac or inflammatory bowel disease. Um, but it's so common and the characteristic symptoms are so present, um, for most people who have it, that you can presumptively make a diagnosis of IBS based on characteristic symptoms, um, of that pain that's relieved by defecation and, um, sort of rapid, sudden changes in stool consistency um, that sort of go along with that pain. Um, and in some people, it actually just manifests as chronic constipation or chronic diarrhea or chronic abdominal pain without that sort of dramatic shift. That's more of the, you know, IBS mixed alternating constipation diarrhea picture. But all people who have those kind of functional gut disorders um, kind of fall under that horrible IBS umbrella. Um, and, um, also it's linked a little bit with abdominal migraine. Um, so, um, and it does have a pretty well recognized, um, like neurobiologic basis as well, um, with serotonin signaling in the gut. And that was actually the basis of some meds that target it, particularly for diarrhea predominant, um, the medication Elocitron, um, which is only approved for women and isn't really approved so much now anymore. And people don't really use it, but um, it uses ser- it uses serotonin receptor um, stuff in the gut to kind of modulate. Um, where was I with this? So serotonin, I'm just wondering about the interaction again of the mental and, and physical health here with IBS, because again, IBS is highly associated with anxiety and or depression. Well, I think that, you know, if serotonin is going wrong in the brain, it can go wrong in the gut, mm-hmm. you know? I think that sometimes when we have a problem regulating neurotransmitters one place, you can get problems regulating it somewhere else because we're all one piece, right? We're not just a brain or just a body. We're a brain and a body together working together with our emotions and our lived experience. So, um, and what we eat, like there's also like all this data about um, FODMAPs, the fermentable oligodisaccharides um, polyols and something they're like, I'm forgetting what the acronym is, right, but, but there it, are, it's, right. It's a really restrictive diet though. I mean, I think really that, restrictive yeah. and not everybody needs to be that restrictive about it right. also. And I think also some people, um, fall into this trap of feeling that they can control everything that they eat. 
and that somehow if they just found the one thing that they are eating wrong, it'll fix how they feel. But that I think is not always the way to go either. Right. But I do think that there's people who have these disorders who find that when they change their diet, they feel better. And so mm -hmm. we can find a middle ground, not of, oh, okay, it was a gluten and I simply have gluten intolerance. And if I just remove gluten, I will be fine, which mm -hmm. is not likely because it's a complex, you know, multi-system problem. Mm -hmm. um, but some people really do have that as a big feature. And if they eat healthier, again, it goes back to healthy diet, healthy exercise, healthy yeah, and sleep. Like, what is healthy anybody. in that context? Like, if like, if like the main trigger is garlic, right. And they're like, oh, it's so healthy. I'm going to have a kale and garlic smoothie every morning. Like, and then they're just getting sicker and sicker. And you're like, oh, that's not what your body wants. You know, like, um, but you know, a lot of times it's really hard to pin that down. And we sort of say like, oh, just eat healthier. But what does healthier mean for that particular person? Like we don't always know. Right. So in this case, I, I'm a big believer in nutritionists, because if you have a good nutritionist, not a nutritionist who's trying to get someone to be a specific weight and weigh their food, not that kind, um, but the kind that can help a person get to a diet that's healthy for them and individualize it. Mm -hmm. So that would be an ideal for me, particularly if someone was struggling also with ha having a healthy weight. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, diet culture is like no friend of any person struggling with chronic Wait, illness. No, 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 yeah. no diet to lose weight. I didn't say that. I did not. No, no, I, no, no, I said this no, before. You didn't trust me. No, no, no. I, I, no, no, I know that. I know that. I just had to feel like I also had to verbalize it. Okay. Um, say it again. We like to say it I, at all my podcasts at some point. <laughs> we're, we're not pro We're health culture. at every size friendly here. Yes, yes, yes. Not pro diet culture. Um, no, but I think no. That, like, you know, we also have to sort of, um, you know, put down the 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 lay down the sword of trying to eliminate every dietary trigger for every right. problem um because oftentimes you won't find one right well it boils down to i've got to get to the root of this no you've got to feel better so right. someone who's working on their diet in a way to make them feel better say remove sugar from their diet and processed food will feel better most likely mm -hmm. even if there is no specific in intolerance than someone who's going on an extensive elimination diet yeah, and I think again that it also does go back to the um, the sort of um, the fact that we that we often feel that, like processed foods are going to make us feel worse. Sugar is going to make us feel worse. It does sort of all come back to that those are the things that are convenient and often cost less, and you know the issues of access around quote healthy food are like real issues but like right it's not always so easy for people to change what they're eating and how um because of constraints on time or access or grocery availability or money or a million things so right. and it's also the perfect being the enemy of the good you know what i mean like right. we, it is possible to eat healthier it is possible to have less processed foods but what that will look like will be different for different people in different situations yeah so um, the nutritionist can be helpful here, presuming you have one on your insurance plan, which I believe everybody which, should. Or that there's like not like a two-year wait list for, you know, mm -hmm. like there's a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, I happen to be very lucky in my language. practice. I have a nutritionist yeah. that takes takes a lot of insurance and is very accessible and is right in my neighborhood and is That's lovely. Great. So I refer people to every other person. <laughs> she loves yeah. me. That's fabulous. And I think that right. like, you know, making good use of that is really, and also I'm a big fan of giving my patients um, handouts from the Ellen Satter website. Um, I love Ellen Satter. She's so amazing. Like literally every pediatric and adult feeding problem can right? be better with Ellen Satter information. Um, 
so, um, and I think that that's also very true. Um, I came across some amazing handouts on medical nutrition therapy for like in a weight neutral health promotion frame. And I was like, mm-hmm. this is so great um, because like the solution to most of these things in many places is like, just lose weight as if it's so easy as if right. everyone can. Right. Um, you know, and I think that, um, you know, but saying like, here are things that you might try that might help you feel better. Here are things that you might try that might help you feel better, which I think is a much more helpful way to frame things. Right. Um, you know, Right. And back to that for just a minute. Everybody deserves to have health at whatever size they're at and not be told, come back when you lose weight and then I'll make you. Uh, yes. <laughs> just going to say that again and again. 100%. Let's say that again and again until people listen. Because not only do women not get appropriate health care, but overweight Fat people women. in general. Overweight women. Right? I'm thinking, yes. I don't like to use that word. Um, oh, I no. like to use it because yeah. that's my preferred term because I feel like I'm reclaiming it. But like, I can understand if that's not the word that you would prefer, but that's the word I prefer to use for myself. I got yelled at once for using the word overweight in front of a little boy. Overweight. Well, I think I overweight mean, like, is actually worse. Because, is it really? Yeah, because it implies that there's an ideal weight and you're over it. Okay. I don't know what word I could have used. But anyway. <laughs> That's why I like to use the word fat because it's unambiguous. That, oh, she would have killed me. Oh, no, that would have been way worse. <laughs> no, but the point is that everybody deserves appropriate, you know, compassionate, dignified health care and we, you know, we, it's a big problem. It's a really big problem in our culture and in, in, in our medical culture. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm 100%, 100% with you here. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Um, so I think we talked about IBS enough for now, although really, honestly, that is a topic in and of itself. Yeah, um, we talked about fibro. We talked about chronic fatigue a little. We talked about migraines. Well, chronic fatigue and POTS I want to talk about next. Oh, sure. POTS. Let's talk with, about With POTS. chronic fatigue together, because they do often yeah. go hand in hand. It was interesting how you mentioned POTS in the post-COVID syndrome. Yes, we are. So anybody who that. thinks chronic fatigue isn't a real thing should now accept that it is real. Yes, yes, it's real. So POTS, right? Positional orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, people who, um, like, when they get when they get up from a seated or, or lying position, often feel like their heart is going really fast. They can feel lightheaded. They can feel dizzy, and they may or may not have orthostatic hypotension which is when your blood pressure goes low when you stand up mm-hmm. quickly. Um, but a lot of them do have um, orthostatic tachycardia, which means their heart goes fast when they stand up. Because that's what POTS um, stands for, right? Positional orthostatic, orthostatic tachycardia, tachycardia syndrome. syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, it can be really disabling because um, people feel really awful when it happens. Um, and... Um, it can make them feel lightheaded. It can make them feel really tired. Um, and um, it can really impair people's ability to do their day-to-day activities. Um, and um, it's something, It's I think that from the pathophys perspective, our best guess is that something has gone awry in the way that the autonomic nervous system signals to itself and to the brain to regulate heart rate and um, and volume, like how much liquid and pressure is in those arteries and veins and lymphatics um, that sort of move things up and down in the body when you get up and sit down. Is that a good explanation? It's an excellent explanation. I just want to differentiate it from the more typical vasovagal because I have plenty of my young adults who faint easily. They do not have POTS. No. Um, So vagal tone is usually higher in kids and young adults Mm -hmm. um, than in older people. 
Um, and, and it's really hot, like in babies, like if you are, and I, I, I deliver babies. So I see this as if you, sometimes if you have, um, you know, a baby who's delivering the heart rate will drop right when the head is being squeezed, mm-hmm. um, because their vagal tone takes over and it, their heart rate goes down. Um, and it's like the equivalent of, of a grown up fainting mm-hmm. and their heart rate going down or a young adult or, or kid. Um, so vagal tone is something that we all take very seriously um, in obstetrics and also mm-hmm. in uh, family medicine obstetrics, um, you know, and in, you know, everybody should take it seriously because it's a big deal. Um, or, you know, if you put in an IUD and your patient faints, that's happened, you know, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, do any, any kind of, of cervical exam, you can make somebody faint because it can trigger a vagal response. So that's different from POTS and... I think it's different from POTS just because the, the mechanism is different. Um, okay, but also POTS is associated with other things as well, right? It's not just simply a tendency to to faint. Well, I mean, are we talking about like the MCS and mast cell activation syndrome and those things or? No, we're just fatigue? talking about chronic fatigue. Okay. And how there's and a, chronic there's a whole fatigue. other spectrum of things mm-hmm. that POTS can and cannot be associated with that I think is like too big of a no, 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 topic no. for us to unwrap right now. No, more in the, the functional class of disorders, you know, there are people who faint easily but are otherwise completely fine. Yeah, I don't think that's disordered in any way. I think that's just like, that's the person. Part of being a teenager. Tendency. Yeah. Right, yeah. part of being a teenager. But, yeah. I, you know, some do have a more of a tendency to faint. And I say, you know, Or a Carrie, Victorian. <laughs> <laughs> Wearing corsets. <laughs> With those, at least. Um, carry, you know, carry your water bottle, have your salty snacks, put your head down and your feet up and, you know, be aware that that's your tendency. But people with mm-hmm. POTS have a whole other set of issues to deal with, often overlapping with chronic fatigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like some of those, some of those suggestions that you made are also useful for people with POTS. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you tell them like, stay hydrated, don't get behind on fluids, mm-hmm. liberalize salt in your diet. Mm-hmm. Wear compression stockings, you know, all those things that can really help somebody who's a prone to fainting, but also B has pots like mm-hmm. helpful in either one of the scenarios. Um, I mean, I think in these, they often have more of an exercise intolerance. Correct me if I'm wrong. Cause I don't No, I, I think I've, I've like, I'm just starting to see it. And I mm-hmm. think like, it's also in pe- the people that I'm seeing, um, it with post COVID, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, there's also an element of deconditioning. Mm-hmm. Because it's after an acute illness. Right. So um, there's just a lot going on there to unpack. Right. And for people with chronic fatigue or people who have, you know, been sick and deconditioned, um, these are the people who are the last people who want to exercise. Right. And yet, and yet that is a, a, an important prong of getting better. Well, and also like we were telling people in acute COVID not to exercise uh, because of myocarditis risk with exercise. Um, for a while. And the guidelines change back and forth on this, but now our guidelines are graded return to activity, mm-hmm. which is what is recommended mm-hmm. for POTS as well is mm-hmm. graded return to activity. So exercise a little bit every day um, and fast enough to change your breathing, which I think is like a much more useful metric than like can talk, but not sing. Like, what does right. that even mean? Like, right, I don't right, really, right, right. Like I don't routinely sing Right, while, while I'm I walk. exercising. <laughs> <laughs> row, 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 row. No. <laughs> but fast enough to change your breathing is, I think, a helpful metric because it shows that you're exerting yourself a little. Um, and I think also like being mindful of like the chronic 
pain part of fatigue is it can hurt to move your body if you're deconditioned. Um, and it likely will hurt after you've moved your body, you know, and like normalizing right. that for people, like it's going to, you might hurt a little bit after this. Right. Cause we're used to the normal recovery period. You wait till you feel better and then you start moving and you do it as tolerated. We see return to exercise as tolerated, but for this category, for someone who's struggling with chronic fatigue and chronic pain, it's going to mean they're going to have to go against the discomfort now, because if they wait, they will not get better. They will get worse. Yeah. That's hard. Yeah. And I think, you know, we really have to like be there with people. Mm -hmm. I feel like I say this a lot, like, but like, let's make a plan. Do you think you can stick to this plan? Like, what's it going to look like for you? Mm -hmm. How is this going to fit into your life and your responsibilities that you already have, you know? Um, and like, and then you check back in, like, how's this working out for you? You know? Um, and I think that actually this is why physical therapy is so helpful mm -hmm. um, because it's um, it helps people get their strength back, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so I really like referring people to physical therapy um, for stuff like this um, and even for fibromyalgia. Like I, I referred a patient to fibromyalgia. Sorry, I referred several patients actually um, to to physical therapy with fibromyalgia and like, it's like really, really dramatic, like how much it helps people. Um, and, um, you know, you really just like sometimes need somebody else to guide you through it. And like, I don't know, like, I guess maybe personal training would work for that too, but like physical therapy has like its own magic and its own knowledge of like how bodies work. That I think right, is right. I think the difference is that you know many people who are going for physical therapy have certain areas that are weaker than others. Mm -hmm. Right, someone who just wants to be reconditioned, who doesn't really have chronic health problems, can go to a coach. Yeah, but someone well, who who is you know has specific weaknesses or you know discrepancies, mm -hmm. certain areas that are more painful than others, who needs yeah. to learn how to move them. That's where physical therapy shines. Yeah. Um, also, things like cardiac rehab and pulmonary rehab. Mm -hmm. um, which you probably don't see a lot as a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. um, but I have like, and this is not functional disorders. I'm usually sending patients with structural disorders to mm -hmm. cardiac and pulmonary rehab. Um, but along those lines, like lung function is something you didn't really think you could improve, right? But like, that's not true. People yeah, can course. improve their lung function. Mm -hmm. Like pulmonary rehab is amazing. Like right. I didn't even think that could happen. Um, but they make goals and they work on them and people's breathing gets better. And I was like, that just totally blew my mind when I learned about pulmonary rehab. Um, and when I saw how it worked in patients that I'd sent to pulmonary rehab. You know, this is a little off topic, but I'm saying it anyway. There's this yeah. man that they call the Iceman. Have you heard of him, Wim Hof? No. So he um, is in the Guinness Book of World Records as being able to tolerate colds like better than anyone. And he's mm -hmm. got a whole method. It was actually in one of the Jewish magazines. I think it was Wellspring Magazine. Um, this whole method of going into ice water, you should take cold showers that you will tolerate colds better if you, you can learn to. You can change your cold tolerance. Mm -hmm. And I think that the idea behind it is similar in that you may think, well, I have to do what feels good and yet it's no pain, no gain. Yeah right? Or no discomfort to put it nicer, mm -hmm. no discomfort, yeah. no gain. So it's the same kind of idea all around. Yeah. And I think also like things like specific phobia therapy, mm -hmm. you know, like a lot of things are kind of based around that principle. Um, 
and like I think I'm sometimes skeptical of it. Um, I did read a critique of the standard therapy for fibromyalgia recently mm-hmm. um, that overexertion actually worsens pain um, in fibromyalgia. So I think that that just I think gets back at the individual goal based therapy. Um, so like it shouldn't be like what anyone else thinks is right return to therapy, but it should be what that person thinks is return to th- is 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 return to function and return to activity. Right. Have you and ever gone to the like, doctor and they tell you you have to eat X or do X and you're like, ha <laughs> like, nice try, Doc. <laughs> it has to be for you. It has to be where you're at, at your, yeah. you know, pace. Same thing with therapy. You know, there may be a therapist that may feel compelled to push at a certain rate and the patient may not be ready. Or right? like as a lactation consultant, if I tell a mom, like, actually, you have to pump eight to 12 times a day. And mm-hmm. and I sure. feel like that's clearly not going to work for this family, right. you know, um, or like, or like, I get a look like, what planet are you living on, doc? <laughs> you know, right. like, um, you know, and like, that's an opportunity to troubleshoot. Like, that's where I'm coming from. But tell me where you're coming from. Right. Like, maybe you want to do bottle and breast at the same time. Yeah. And do half yeah. and half. Maybe that's what you want. Yeah. yeah. Maybe you want to just start bottle feeding because it's all too much. You know, also everybody's fine. different. Yeah, I'm very like when that like, I do not think that breast is best for every mom and every right. baby. No, that like, is best. That is yeah. best. Um, I think that there's just like an individual plan that's out there that's right for every individual person, but there's no one plan that works for every, every person. Absolutely. Other points that we should bring up would be, um, I think we've said a lot about being there with our patients. And I think, you know, being there as we go through the process and not getting frustrated if their rate is not the same as our rate of recovery. Yeah. Right. Or our expected rate for them. Right. Yeah. Like what we think they should be doing. Right. Or something that we thought would work didn't work. I mean, I've had people get very frustrated at patients because what they were telling them to do wasn't working. Like, how dare you not be better? I know, right? (laughs) I I had a patient with an eating disorder and they were telling the mother to get her to eat and the mother couldn't because that's why she was there in the first place. It was very sad. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know, that just, that just drives me crazy. Like, you're not in charge, you know, right. like, you don't, like, I don't know, I feel like this is part of where our, like, our religious beliefs kind of kick in. And it's like, I actually, I'm not in charge of the outcome here. Right. You know, like, there is, there's, you know, forces that are not me at play here. Um, you know, and I think, you know, we have, an amazing responsibility, but we also like can't take on the role of saying like, I am the person who can fix this. Like, no, you're not, you're not in charge of fixing this. Like you're in charge of guiding people to tools that can help them heal. Right. You're in charge of, of being with them in their suffering, but you're not in charge of their healing. You don't hold that key, you know? Right. And that is a beautiful way. I'm going to stop with your words because I can't do better than them. But this is going to have to be continued because this is really just an introduction to a whole bunch of disorders that really each deserve their own talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you. This is great. We should do this again. Yes. Yes. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. 
If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.